how to take your career from accidental to deliberate. The three things that you need to do when asking for a raise or promotion. The most important conversation that you can have with your boss. The most important career exercise that most people are not doing. Why you need to define your professional values and so much more coming right up. This is episode number three, one, seven, with best-selling author and career coach, Scott Miller. What's up, everybody, and welcome back to Nick Carrier's Best You Podcast. Do you want to go from unmotivated to work out to more disciplined than ever before? If so, then go check out the Best You 10-week transformation program that gives you the ability to set a worthy goal, create a predictive and workable game plan, and it maximizes your discipline through accountability. Just visit go.nickcarrier.com slash 10-week program to get started from anywhere today. Today, I'm super pumped to bring on one of my favorite people in the entire world, the one and only Scott Miller. I interviewed Scott for the first time about two and a half years ago and have grown a very good friendship and relationship with him ever since. More than almost anybody, Scott Miller delivers massive value to anyone and everyone that he puts himself in front of. Those of you ambitious people out there looking to get ahead in their career, this episode is for you. Take out your notebooks, get a pencil or pen, and get ready to take down some amazingly valuable notes. Be sure you're subscribing to Nick Carrier's Best You Podcast on the Apple Podcast app, iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, and be sure you share this episode with a friend or family member while you're listening as well. Just send them to nickcarrier.com slash podcast. But without further ado, here's to getting closer and closer to your best you with the one and only Scott Miller. All right, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to Nick Carrier's Best You Podcast. I could not be more fired up today to bring back on the one and only Scott Jeffrey Miller. Scott, thanks so much for spending the time with me today. Nick Carrier, what an honor to be back on your platform, bro. Thank you for the spotlight today. (laughs) Yeah, I've been super excited about this one. I mean, I think after I interviewed you the first time, what, two and a half, three years ago now, and I knew I wanted to interview you again about so much more and then now having having gotten closer and closer to you over the last six months or so and having the the benefit and of taking in so much knowledge from you and so much uh, experience and learning from your messes and uh, some of your successes as well it's benefited me so much in regards to the clarity and the vision and the confidence that I have for my career moving forward and that's why I want to do the interview with you again because I know so many of my peers and so many of my friends and so many of the people that I'm hanging out with on a routine basis are always like, I'm not really in the job that I want to do, but I'm not really sure what it is that I want to do next. And so I want to help those people gain clarity because a lot of people that I'm hanging around with, a lot of people that are listening to this podcast are ambitious people. You don't listen to the best you podcast unless you're an ambitious person and you want to get closer to the best version of, of themselves. So those are the people we want to we want to help out today. So the way I kind of want to start out today is talking a little bit about your career journey. You were started with Disney back in 1992. were there for a good four years. And then you made the jump to, I guess it was the Covey Leadership Center before having kind of uh, quickly transitioned to Franklin Covey. What was that decision-making process like? And what really allowed you to feel confident in accepting that role? And that was the right role for you? Well, that's a gracious setup. Because what you call making the jump, you know, is they fired my ass and I didn't have any choices. (laughs) So I'm quite comfortable talking about my past. But first, I have to to acknowledge 
those of your listeners or viewers that can see, Nick, there's an inverse correlation in the size of your microphone and your length of your career, because you've got the longest microphone of anybody I've ever seen. <laughs> It's also like, it's also just a little bit awkward because like, that's the only thing you can see in this camera. But <laughs> <It's true>. the- <laughs> Listen, everybody knows I'm a huge Nick Carrier fan. As I have told countless hundreds of people, Nick Carrier is the next Jillian Michaels. So world best you followers watch out. This man is on fire. When you see what he's got planned in the coming years, I've been privileged to have a behind the scenes look at some of the programs, intellectual property, content point of view that Nick is coming out with. I'm excited to be uh, a friend of yours and on your platform. To answer your question beyond the size of your microphone is, you know, I, uh, I've had a career that's been quite deliberate. Once Disney fired me, I was 26, and I ended up picking up and moving across the nation from Orlando, Florida to Provo, Utah where then I had a 25-year career with the Franklin Covey Company, what is now known as the world's most preeminent leadership development firm, started at the front line, worked my way up literally to the C-suite, was the company's first and only ever chief marketing officer, was a named officer in that firm, since then became a Wall Street Journal bestselling author. I've authored numerous books, host the world's largest podcast, write an article magazine, and I've had a really good run. But I'll tell you, it was, I think, my awakening from my termination at Disney that made me realize, like a lot of people, my career was kind of accidental. I mean, for a while, I was a waiter. For a while, I was a realtor. For a while, I was a project manager. I did a lot of different things. I was curious that way, professionally in my 20s. But I didn't want my career to be a series of accidental steps or missteps. So it really was back in my mid-20s that I took control of my career and decided to move to a deliberate career and really just never give up control of my career to anyone else. As a result of that, I'm writing a book about careers. I have hosted and launched a new career coaching uh, program called Ignite Your Genius. That's why I'm on today. And through my own experience, I decided to take better control of my career. And I've had an amazing career, two steps forward, one step back, sometimes three steps back, two steps forward. But I'm passionate, I'm obsessed with helping people become more deliberate and take control of their futures. Yeah, and well, I, I acknowledge you for doing that back in, when you were 26 years old and letting that ha- that experience happen for you and not to you. I think a lot of people, when they get fired, they'll not really take responsibility for either the reasoning that they're get firing, they, why they got fired, or their ability to kind of take hold of that situation and use it to their advantage. And that's something that you definitely did. And so by the way, I think you- I'm the only person that's ever said I was fired. Like no one's ever been fired. I'm in <laughs> yeah. front of audiences of 10,000 people. Raise your hand if you've been fired. It's just my hand, right? It's like, <laughs> once again, I'm the winner. I'm the only person ever. Yeah. Well, so, you know, you talked about how when you were 26, you realized kind of for the first time you had this moment where you were like, I don't want to leave my career up to chance. Like you said, I want to be deliberate about your career. And you know, that's what your Ignite Your Genius course is, take your career from accidental to deliberate. So when you were 26 years old, what did taking control of your career look like? I, I know you talked about, you've, you've talked num- numerous times about writing your career plan on a napkin. So talk a little bit about what your taking um, ownership of your career looked like when you were 26. Well, I think to your point earlier, it was about really kind of having a meeting with myself. 
not blaming anybody else, not blaming the culture or the boss or whatever it was. Uh, it was really kind of taking a whole assessment of who am I? What is my brand? What is my reputation? What are the decisions that I've made that have formed that reputation for me, mm -hmm. good and bad? What do people think about me? What is it like to work with me? What is it like to be around me? And I really just took assessment of kind of what I wanted to do, what my professional values were. And I had some rough conversation with myself, right? I, I looked more strategically and, and transparently, vulnerably at my strengths and my weaknesses. And I kind of just had a raw conversation around what I wanted to do, what I wanted to accomplish, what was important to me, and what were the things that I was doing to get in the way of? Get, get in the way of. Because in most cases, I was preventing me from accomplishing what was important to me. Someone else wasn't. I couldn't blame someone else, right? And that was an epiphany for me. I had a really serious conversation with myself and uh, started to ask people, what's it like to be around me and work with me and work for me? I knew, but I didn't, I needed to hear it verbalized by other people. And that was a, a big transition for me in my 20s. I also, I think, realized that if I'm going to take control of my career, I have to be willing to disrupt myself. I mm. have to be like one step ahead of everybody else. Don't wait for the budget to be reviewed and the CFO to question my position. Don't wait for the acquisition to be accomplished and have me and my position be part of that new merger, right? But really take immense proactive responsibility for my career and always being one step ahead of the other decision. And, and the reason I did that, Nick, was because I once heard say, someone say something, it's actually horrifying. It's kind of repulsive, but it's true. And this person said, you're never in the room when your career is decided for you. And it was so true, but gross. I never wanted that to be my story. So I probably went overboard to make sure that not only am I in the room, but I'm the only one in the room yeah. when my career is decided for me. So one of the things that I really loved from your Ignite Your Genius modules, and one of the things that I wrote down that I wanted to talk to you about today is this concept that you mentioned, the kind of willingness to disrupt yourself. And you gave some of those kind of different examples, but break down a little bit more of what that actually means for an individual to disrupt themselves. Yeah. I, this will sound like a cliche, Nick, but I think it's different for each, each person, right? For some people, disrupting yourself might be asking for feedback from champions and challengers in your life that can really tell you, give you an accurate perception of your talents, your strengths, your weaknesses, your annoyances, right? But so one, disrupting yourself is challenging your mindset of how you are viewed, of what your brand is. For someone else, disruption might mean moving physically abroad to a new culture, to a new city where you know no one. Disruption might be pulling back on your discretionary spending so you can build a savings account and have a runway for four or five, six months so you can quit your job because you're not happy or start a side hustle. For some, disruption might be looking at the comfort of your current job. And are you willing to address the pain that you're in? And is the pain big enough for you 
to move to a different organization or a different leader or a different industry or change skills altogether. Disruption requires courage, but it also requires you not to be reckless, be thoughtful, right? And prudent about what do you want to happen? I've done a ton of disruption. I've done all those things I just mentioned at various stages of my career. Yeah, to me, I feel like disruption needs to happen when you feel like your growth is flatlining. When you feel like you're no longer learning something new or you're getting maybe a little bit complacent with where you currently are, that's when you need to have the awareness around that and and find a way to disrupt yourself, like you said, in a meaningful way, in a way that's going to be useful for you and, and your career. I, I, well said. And I'll take it a step further. There's a woman that I had the privilege of interviewing on the podcast that I host on leadership with Scott Miller. Her name is Whitney Johnson. And Whitney's written several books, including a book called Disrupt Yourself. And Whitney says that in most people's careers, there comes a time at about the third year when you're in a specific job that a bit of atrophy sets in. Psychologically, you've mastered that job that the challenge is no longer there intellectually. And you may not think you're phoning it in, but sort of statistically, from an organizational viewpoint, other people begin to see you as being a bit complacent before you even notice it yourself. And so to your point earlier, I think it's important to disrupt yourself, not just when you're feeling complacent, but before you are so that nobody else notices. Because you may think, that you're on your game. You may think that you're masquerading it well, but the, the odds are you're probably not as good at disguising your, you know, your frustration, your complacency as you think you are. And you don't want, in my experience, Nick, you don't want your leader to get a whiff of that. If you want to take deliberate control of your career, you are thinking about disruption long before anybody else is thinking about it for you. you know, this kind of this adage of act or be acted upon. Now, some people will hear that as change jobs every 14 months. No. Yeah. I think there's a different calibration, right? Is you don't want to be seen as a hopscotcher that's constantly moving, constantly on the move, constantly looking for the next thing. Quite frankly, people don't want to hire someone that just wants to be in the job for 14 months. I recognize that my generation, where 25 years is a normal career, is different from your generation, right? We can have a discussion around what loyalty means or doesn't mean I don't need to or even want to go there. But be thoughtful around how you calibrate disruption as opposed to like just career ADD, right? Those are not the same thing. Yeah, I think it's one of those things where it is a lot of people might interpret disruption as jumping to a new job because sometimes finding those other modes of disruption take a little bit more thought behind it. And it's just like, if I if I know that something doesn't feel right, then okay, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna quit the job rather than maybe taking an internal look at myself or and an internal look at how I'm communicating with other people, an internal look at my skills. Like I think jumping to a different job sometimes is just easier and take and requires less work than maybe other forms. Again, I, I often comment about how wise you are for your years in the metaphorical saddle, but that is exactly right. Is you know we've heard this phrase: you're either running from something or you're running to something. Most of us in our careers are running from something, bad boss or a corrupt culture or you know, a nightmare team or whatever it is. But I think you're right. And in, in, in the course and in my books, I've written about 
this term called the law of the harvest. Dr. Stephen R. Covey talked about it in his book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, that if you look at farmers, like for example, a potato farmer, you know, every three years or so, they rotate their crop and they plant oftentimes a money losing crop, like alfalfa or something, because they've got to replenish the soil so that next year they can build bigger, better, more expensive potatoes. I think it's a genius metaphor for our careers. There's a time to plant, there's a time to harvest. And I think generally, Nick, and the younger generation, our patience level is less than it could be. There's a time to harvest. There's a time to fertilize, weed, rake, mow, water, fertilize, weed, rake, mow, water, right? And sometimes I think we all could benefit from asking ourselves, is it time to fertilize and water and plant? Or is it time to harvest? Because you can't harvest a crop that hasn't developed. Yeah, no, and I've heard you talk about that so much. And I've obviously heard you talk about that and aiding that your genius as well. And it's funny because just recently, so I watch a online church on YouTube with a guy named Erwin McManus and the church is, out, is called Mosaic out in California. And he had this, this past Sunday, it, the sermon was called, sometimes you have to lose in order to win. And sometimes you have to should decide to essentially lose the short-term battle to win the long-term war, right? And, and that's essentially a, a piece of what that means in regards to the law of the harvest. And same thing, I was listening to Don, a Donald Miller podcast with Business Made Simple the other day, and he talked about a very a very similar idea in regards to that. But like as you as you've touched upon, so many people in my generation are impatient. They're like, let's get to the next job. Let's get to the next job. Like practically, what are things that they can do so that harvesting still feels somewhat gratifying and they actually do it and they don't just make a jump if that makes sense? Yes. A couple of thoughts. Uh, one of the smartest things I've ever heard is this adage of sometimes a disappointment turns into an appointment. Mm. And I like, I, I revisit this daily, right? Whether I have a book that's not done well or a publishing contract that's not done well or what, and I've, I've had lots of successes and I've had lots of, of setbacks and failures. And whenever I am shut down, I had, I had a big shutdown a week ago. And as I thought about it, okay, so what's the silver lining in this? This, this person didn't hire me. This promotion didn't happen. This job didn't come through. What can I take from this? If you're a person of faith or, or, or not, you can still you know, think maybe there's some serendipity. Maybe there's something I should learn from this, right? Is what, what is the bright side of this? What, what opportunities will this open for me in terms of my strategy and my mind that this has closed off? So my, some good solid career advice is, is when something doesn't happen like you want it to, Bruise hard, heal fast, and pivot into, so now what am I to learn from this? Where should I focus now? Good life advice. To answer your question, I think, and this is one of the modules in the Ignite Your Genius series. This is an 11-module online self-paced course with me yapping on camera like I'm doing right now with a digital and printed guidebook that I think can transform. Absolutely. It's, it, to me, it's the best career coaching program I've ever seen. Of course, I'm prejudiced because I own it. But here's the big aha I've had. Uh, I'm 53, spent 30 years in the leadership development industry, right? Had a career, like I said, that culminated with being an, uh, an executive officer at a public global company. And 
we hear a lot, Nick, about this idea of knowing your personal values. And you and I have talked about this before, right? Is that's not a new term. I think most people know they should have some values. If you haven't done the exercise, you make stuff up. That's convenient at a dinner party or at the gym or you know for a walk. But everyone listening to this podcast should take the time to think about what are your pers- personal values? What are the things you value in life? And I think you should take it a step further. I think equally as important as your personal values are your professional values. And I don't think anybody in mankind other than those who have gone through Night Your Genius, have taken the time to identify what are my professional values. Because to answer your question, that gives you the lens through which you make all your decisions. You go this way, you go that way. You pursue this, you don't pursue that. For example, you know, because we are friends and colleagues, my number one professional value is maximizing my income. And I, and I, I shouted from a mountaintop unabashedly. I'm not working for my health. I am working to earn money, and I want to maximize that to its greatest potential. Now, my second value, as you know, is working for a brand that I respect in life. So I could earn more money working for a less reputable organization. But I don't want to earn so much money to where I compromise my integrity or I'm not proud of my brand. I probably can make a lot of money in the legalization of marijuana. That is not something I am interested in doing or supporting. No offense to anybody. I have three young boys, so I'm trying to, you know, shape their perception of that appropriately. Thirdly, I, my third value is I want to work with people who I love and respect, and they love and respect me. So I think the first advice I would give to everyone is if you want to create a deliberate career where you're not bouncing around, ser- you know, serendipitously, recognizing that there is serendipity in all careers. If you want to create a multi-decade deliberate career, first get clear on your professional values because that's the lens through which you will look for careers, grow your skills, look at organizations, demand certain types of cultures and leadership and say yes or say no to opportunities. You are clear on your professional values. That isn't an overnight experience. That is, as you know, a multi-day, multi-kind of week wrestling so that you can rattle them off just like I did and make all your decisions through yeah, no doubt. And and I'm glad that you expanded on why it is so important, because I think a lot of people can hear personal values and they can hear professional values and they think it's kind of a soft topic. They think it's kind of like it's it's just something nice to to know and you feel good about yourself when you when you write these things down. But like to be completely transparent, right, like I did, I've done the same thing. I've got seven professional values myself. My top four are maximize impact, be a well-respected brand, create truly useful products and services and maximize income. And as as you know, when this echelon opportunity that I recently had over the last couple of months have been embarking upon, when that came my way, I was like a relative no brainer in regards to looking at my professional values. They have a, they have a wide reach and this allows me to maximize my impact. Maybe it's not the number one way that I can make money. I have to commute down to Chattanooga two hours in both directions every single week. That is an opportunity cost for when I could potentially be making more money, but it has the maximizing impact part of it. Case in point, look at you. You are in your mid-20s and you are a rocket ship. You know exactly what it is you want to accomplish. You have defined your values. You have one of the fastest growing podcasts in the nation. You're in the cusp of authoring a book. You have a burgeoning brand, an empire, literally an empire 
that is going to be built in the next decade plus, and you're going to be one of the most influential, well-known names and thought leaders in your space because you are enormously deliberate against a plan. You have a plan, it's defined by your values, and now you are able to say yes or no. You are not an easily distracted person because you have a very clear plan and you are working that plan. You're an excellent case study for how important it is to have identified your professional values. Yeah, I appreciate the the kind words as always. But, uh, and to kind of stick with this idea because (laughs) I appreciate it. I, I want to continue to to stick with this idea of having a vision, uh, a longer term vision for your career, because I, tr- I truly believe that it is one of the biggest things that people aren't doing that they should be doing. They, they don't it because it sounds it's hard to come up with what the hell your career is going to look like in 30 years and 20 years and 10 years and five years and that kind of stuff. And because. Because so many people think they need to know and, and they people think that they need to follow what they write down to a T or else it's worthless. And that's obviously not the case. So I want you to kind of take a little bit of time. You know, you have this part in your workbook where you have this uh, whole timeline of, of how people can kind of plan out their career. I want you to start off just briefly talking about how you did it back on that napkin over a quarter a century ago, just to date you. Um, and and t- talk about the uh, talk about how somebody can start to do that for themselves. We're going to take a brief pause in the interview really quickly because if you're somebody who is looking to achieve a fitness goal or maybe you lack motivation to get into the gym, you lack some structure in your weekly routine, or maybe you've been wanting to get back into the fitness game and get back to maybe your weight loss goal or whatever goal it is, and you're not really quite sure how. If that sounds like you, my 10-week program is for you because I help everybody set a very specific goal. Then we create a very specific strategy of the two or the three things that we need to do every single week that we believe are going to make us successful with our overall goal. And then I'll help you execute and I'll help you hold you accountable every single week. So you do the things that you kind of know you should be doing, but you're you're not quite doing them right now. And that's what I've done with hundreds of people over the past 365 days, over the past a little over a year. And I want you to make sure that you are part of it as well. And enough for me. I want you to hear from the people who have done it in the past, what they've got out of it and why they did it in the first place. So here you go. I cannot say enough good things about Nick's 10 week program. I have always been somebody who has worked out but never really had a fitness goal. If anything, I really wanted to achieve. It was more so just to stay in shape. And Nick does a great job of helping you not only define the goal, but also realize what steps you need to take to get there. Tomorrow, as of my weigh in week nine, I hit my goal of losing 25 pounds in 10 weeks. Just the whole methodology of the program with it being one big goal followed by some smaller goals to help me reach that big goal and then the weekly commitments to help me reach those smaller goals. During these times, it's helped strengthen my mental health and strengthen my focus and really made sure to hold me accountable to my goals. I'm so happy that I was able to hit the goal and uh, so much so that I decided to do another 10 weeks with Nick. I would recommend it to anybody, no matter what your goals are, if it's weight loss, if it's running a shorter mile, if it's 
anything you would like to achieve, I think that this program gives you the tools to set yourself up for success. But one of the biggest benefits for me, and the biggest takeaway I had was one I wasn't necessarily set out to improve upon, and that was building more self-confidence and really instilling self-accountability. The program was great. Um, I'm doing it again a second time to continue my weight loss, and just can't recommend it enough. So again, guys, if you lack motivation, if you lack structure, if you want to get back into your fitness game, but you're not really sure how, then I want you to make sure you go to nickcarrier.com slash 10-week programs. Again, nickcarrier.com slash 10-week programs to learn more. For now, let's get back to the interview. So I did this when you were in diapers, just to put a point on that. <laughs> uh, Nick, a couple of thoughts. One is I, I do think that serendipity, is a necessary force in our careers, right? I mean, I, I moved to the UK once for a year. I moved to Chicago. I attempted to move to Australia. The CEO foiled that. But I don't think that having a deliberate career doesn't mean you're open to serendipitous opportunities, right? Welcome to dating. Welcome to marriage. Welcome to children, right? I mean, I had my life planned as a single guy. I thought I would never get married. And then one day in the gym, there she was. Here I am, two years later, married with three kids, and 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 uh, wishing we were still dating. <laughs> her, I want to date her. <laughs> I'm kidding. Uh, one of the big picture ideas in the Night Your Genius series is that I do think people have too much serendipity in their career that they just bounce from here to there. Right, most careers are followed because you Google, you know, six-figure sales jobs. 30 miles from my house on ladders.com. What the hell, people? That's not a career strategy. That's called boredom. You know, more than half of all careers are filled because of a referral. We know that. It's all who you know. But I think in the Ignite Your Genius series, as you mentioned, I give you this map and I teach this idea of really what I call backcasting as opposed to forecasting out 20 years. What is my next job? What is my next job? I want you to think out with the end in mind. What do I want to do with my career? Whether you're 20, 30, 40, 50, whatever, what do I want the ultimate to be? It might be entrepreneur. It might be CEO. It might be Western region sales director. It might be office manager. It might be retirement. Think out what does the end look like? 10, 20, 30 years from now. Put your pen in that. For me, it was actually becoming a member of Congress. And then backcast. If I want to become a member of Congress, if I want to be the CEO, if I want to be the president of the Western Division, if I want to own my own chiropractic business, whatever it is, put a pen in the ultimate. And then backcast. What do I have to do before that? Right before that. And then right before that, and then before that, and before that, and, before, and backcast all of the positions, the titles, the jobs, and then associate what skills and talents do you need to learn along the way. So you've got the plan where you now can forecast because you've backcast. To your point, 26 years ago, I sat down at a TGI Fridays in Orlando, Florida, and I actually took the paper placemat, like the menu, whatever it was, and I turned it over. And I wrote out like my 30-year career. I was 25, about. And I really thought I wanted to run for Congress. So at age 60, I wrote 
House of Representatives. Then I said, you know what, to do that, I probably need to fund my own campaign. I need to have some wealth. I need to have some business experience. So I need to be the CEO. And to be the CEO of what company I didn't know, I probably need to be the COO or at least in the C-suite. And then to be in the C-suite, I probably need to be a divisional president, a divisional vice president, a director, a senior director, a manager, so-and-so. And I started to research how organizations were built, how companies were formed, how other people's careers developed. How did you get to be an entrepreneur? How did you get to be a CEO? How did you get to be the mayor? And I began to look for patterns and I replicated that on my 30-year career journey. And then I put down the ages that I wanted to be in those roles, the year I would accomplish it, the amount of money I wanted to earn in each job, the skills and talents I needed to master before moving on to the next job. And damn it, I went and made it happen. And I spent 25 years following that plan Never more than one or two years off the tranche, never more than 10 or 20 grand off the income. And if you look back, you'd say, you look back at my resume and that plan, it's like hand in glove. Because, like to quote every successful person, have a plan or be part of someone else's. And a goal written down is a goal realized. And so, if that is not a testament to the power of writing down a goal, revisiting it every six months or so. How am I on? By the way, I didn't shame myself if I wasn't right on track. You know, generally like a, like a, um, I don't know what you call it, like an EKG. I was right in the zone or such. But I don't know where I would have been had I not had that three-decade plan. But I know where I am because I did have it. Yeah. There, there's so much. Of course, I think it's I think it's so powerful. But there, and there's a few things I want to kind of unpack or or note from it. While you talk about how there was so much synchronicity and there was so much alignment between your plan and how it actually followed through, that's not necessarily the point of the exercise. The point of the exercise is coming up with some sort of vision because you're going to end up somewhere better because of it, even if it's not there. That's right. Right. So it was, it was the visualization of having a vision of where am I going? And am I, am I going to Taipei? Am I going to Tacoma? Am I going to Tahiti? Like, where am I going? No, I'm going to Taipei. Now, I might spend three years in Portugal, and I, metaphorically, I might spend some time in Japan, but my goal is Taipei, which is a very different route than Tacoma. Neither is wrong or right, but I kind of knew where I wanted to go. And I think most people haven't thought past their next job. Most people have not thought two careers from now. I was thinking seven careers from now. Yeah. Well, and, I, and you know, yours has so much alignment, I think, because you were very, I think you were very unique in this way in the sense that you had a pretty clear idea of what it is that you wanted. I don't think everybody has necessarily the clarity that you might have had at that age of, of what you wanted. And because of that, you, you stayed kind of on course. And, and the, as you got older, that still felt as if that was the right plan for you. But even if even if you're not all that clear, st having that ending point is really important because as you start getting closer, then you realize like, oh, wait, wait that's kind of not really where I wanted to go. So I'd make that little bit of a pivot. Yeah. And here's a perfect example. My goal was to become a member of Congress. When I was 60. I'm 53. I will probably not run for Congress for lots of reasons that are fairly self-evident after the last seven months. 
my wife doesn't want me to run for Congress. Uh, I can't afford to run for Congress. I got three young boys, right? I can't afford to have two homes. I did not become the CEO. I, I made it to CMO, pretty close. And instead of being the CEO of a big company, I decided to pivot off six months ago and become an entrepreneur. Now, technically, I'm the CEO of my company. I have three employees. But so it isn't as if I feel any failure. I don't feel any failure, not yet running the comp for Congress, which was on my map for 25 years of becoming the CEO. I feel immense accomplishment. And by the way, for those of you who are looking and watching me, I didn't go to Yale. I didn't go to Stanford. I didn't go to Harvard. I don't have an MBA. I'm not a master at anything. I'm just, I'm just a guy that will, like you, outwork everybody else. I'm no smarter, but I'm not as smart as most people. But mother, I will outwork you, and I will out-network you. I'll get up earlier than you, and I'll go to bed a little, a little later. And I think those are still good principles. In yeah. And just to kind of hammer the point home one more time in regards to the, the importance of this that I see and, and the reason why I'm saying it again is because I just think it's so, so important. I, and I don't know anybody who's doing it personally is one, it helps orient your decision-making. Like you said, the professional values gives you a lens in which you can make decisions in. But then the other huge thing is that one of our biggest drivers of happiness, one of our biggest drivers of motivation is progressing towards something that we want to progress towards. And you have to have that which you want to work towards in order to know you're making progress. And so when you start to see yourself making a leap on the timeline, then you get that fulfillment, you get that happiness, you get that realization that, oh, I am on track, I am moving forward, when a lot of people feel like they have been stuck over the last three, five, 10 years. Nick, your thought there makes me, makes me be reminded of, you know, I don't live in the past. And for good or bad, I also don't live in the present. I, live, I tend to live in the future. Good or bad, I tend to live in the future. And that has been an instrumental piece in my career, but also my personal life. I, I like to set goals. I like to live for a Saturday night's dinner party or next month's trip to Cabo or the next house I'm going to buy or, or going to a friend's you know, 40th birthday party. I like to look forward to things. And I, and I, I think it's been a, a key defining aspect of my life. What's been positive is, like you, I, I'm always, I never look back. I could stand to live more in the present, my wife tells me, right? It's true, as a father and as a spouse, I don't live in the present. I always live in the future, good and bad, but it's been an excellent mindset for my career. That not so much to where my boss thinks that I'm focused on the next job, because what earned me the next job is crushing my current job. Yeah. I never moved prematurely. They knew I was interested, but no one ever said to me, I wish Scott would just do the job he has versus always talk about the job he wants. I was very deliberate to make sure I gave evidence. I delivered results that, 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 that positioned me for the next job. Yeah. So a, a couple of topics, I'm, I'm going to address that. A couple of topics I want to hit on then before we kind of get to the last couple quick questions is that idea of crushing the job that you're currently doing, but also kind of doing the job that you want, because that's one of the biggest things that you talk about in your Ignite Your Genius course. And you talk about some of the reasons why you can 
the top five reasons people get promoted is it's a bonus module that you have. And, and one of them is like help their leader outside of their day job. And you talk a lot about doing your, make sure you crush the current job. Don't always be looking to the future, as you said, but also be doing the job, kind of the job that you want. So talk a little bit about what that looks like for people. Well, this is an awkward and delicate balance because yeah. I think my experience has been that, sorry for this generalization, most people are pendulums. They come this way and they swing this way and then they swing this way. I mean, look at American presidential politics, right? Bush and Obama and, you know, and then but, or Trump and, you know, and, and Biden. I mean, there's, you know, no things in moderation anymore. Yeah. I think in your career, you've got to be really calibrated. I like to use the metaphor of like, you know, a clutch and a gas, right? There's just this good calibration of a smooth transition from first to second gear. You've got to know how to crush the job you're in how to over-deliver in your current job, but also behave in a way that informs people, that markets yourself, that you're interested in what's next, you're interested in doing more. That you say to your, your leader, hey, I think I've got my current stuff under control. Is there anything else that I could do to help you that could be a win for you? No doubt you have demands. I think one of the biggest issues that holds people back from promotion is they're, at a, they're in an antagonistic relationship with their leader. Is that they don't move out of their own mindset and wonder, what is it like to be the leader? What pressures is she under? What struggles is she having? What is it like to lead me? Most bad leaders aren't bad people. They're, they're just under pressures that you can't relate to. So I think if you're looking to have your leader be your champion, and you should, because your leader can be your biggest champion or can crush opportunity for you. You need to make sure you're building a relationship with them where you're better understanding what pressures are they under? What projects do they need to accomplish? How can you make them look like a hero? Unless you're working for a narcissist, which at the end of the day, most of us aren't. We probably think we are, but we're not. Unless you're working for a sociopath or a narcissist, most leaders will give you credit. Most leaders will bring you up with them. Most leaders will appreciate your interest in moving outside of your current job. Just that, 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 that gas and clutch calibration, right? Of make sure you're not all of a sudden painting the roof, metaphorically, when you should be mowing the lawn. But I see a lot, I do see a lot of people that I've coached that get so busy on managing their brand on the next job that they look back and the leader says, yeah, but you haven't done this. What got me promoted every time was Scott hit 13 quarters in a row. Not three quarters in a row, 13 quarters in a row. Count those, that's four years in one quarter. And so be patient, have a little bit of impatience, but make sure you're giving your leaders every reason to realize you are crushing this and you're willing to take on some more. And it may require you to have some seasons of imbalance. It may require you to, you know, have imbalance for eight or 10 or 12 weeks and then come back to balance. I don't know that work-life balance like this is a thing anymore. You may have some seasons of imbalance and that might be what it requires to get ahead in your industry, your company, your culture. Yeah. I, to touch on that last thing, I think, like you said, work-life balances is one of those popular phrases that's out there. But most of the people, if you have 
true work-life balance, you, you, you're probably not going to get promoted in the next few months. Uh, kind of a thing. Like you, you probably need to be a little bit out of balance. Comes back to your values. Your, your, yeah. your number one professional value might be work-life balance. Great. Go to work at the library. Go to work at the motor vehicles division. Go work at a, a nursery where they, there's no overtime. You're not at home thinking, about, oh my gosh, I got to water the plants. I mean, it all comes down to your values. And there's no right or wrong values. No one should judge your values, and you shouldn't give a flying you-know-what about what anybody else thinks about your values. But once you are clear on your values, then you're willing and able to come outside of your comfort zone. You're willing to be in a season of imbalance occasionally and kind of know when you need to snap back into balance. That's why the, that's why the first module is know your professional values. Everything else flows from that. Yeah, no, I think that's, that's key, and, and you saying that just really hit it home for me. I said, yeah, you know what, this, this, this is the thing everybody needs needs to start with and, and needs to make sure that they do. The kind of the last thing I want to hit on is changing gears a little bit because I hear a lot of people talk about how they made the right decision because they trusted their gut and they trusted their instinct and they listened to that. And I think there is a, a lot of validity to that, but I also think there is of validity to the people who say it because the people who you hear say it are probably you're hearing them say it because they're successful. You're not hearing the people, the unsuccessful people talk about how they trusted their gut because they haven't got reached a level of success. Right. And because a lot of people, I think trust their gut, but they mistake that phrase for they took the easy way out or they did something because it, it got a little bit uncomfortable and and I and I felt uncomfortable. I felt like it wasn't right. So I trusted my gut and I did something else. When really the thing you should have done maybe was head towards the the discomfort and head towards your uncomfort level. And, and that's where you actually could have grown a little bit more. I, I don't know how many decisions or choices that you talk about that you, you trusted your gut for, but I wanted to see if you had any thoughts in regards to what the proper relationship is with trusting your gut, if that makes sense. Here's what I would say, and I apologize. My three sons are home from an outing. I have one literally that appears to be running a, a, a matchbox car against the room wall next to me. So welcome to 2021, people. In case you're wondering what that sound is, my youngest one's trying to get my attention. I'm going to give it to him in about 10 minutes. Um, here's what I would say. Uh, I interviewed on my podcast a woman named Dr. Susan David. She's a fairly famous author. Her TED Talk is amazing. She wrote a book called Emotional Agility. And the big premise of her book is that as emotionally agile people, we have to learn the difference between our emotions, our opinions, and our feelings, aka our gut, and facts. Emotions, opinions, feelings, and facts. Facts are facts. And emotions and opinions and feelings are just those. Both are valuable, both are vital, but they're different. So when you're looking at a decision that has to do with trusting your gut, whether it be moving across the country, quitting a boss, changing industries, learning a new skill, you know, do your best to think about it as logic as possible. Look at all the facts. You may not have all the facts, right? Gather enough facts to make an informed decision. How much information is enough information, right? Is perfect information necessary? Usually not. Launching a rocket, yes. 
Changing jobs, no. But really to understand, you know, does your gut provide you a consistent pattern of, pattern of success? You know, I interviewed Adam Grant a few months ago, and he talked about dismissing your gut altogether. Yeah. That, you know, facts and data is everything. I mean, how much data did I cut to my wife for my marriage? None other than her credit score and arrest record. And same for me. Yes, my wife and I exchanged credit scores and arrest records. You should do that before you. So there was no, it was all gut, right? It's all feeling and experience. So I don't know if I answered your question or not, but I do think there's some instructive value in recognizing your feelings, your emotions, and your opinions, which form your gut, have value. Just don't confuse them with facts. Mm-hmm. Separate them. And if you've done a sufficient job, of assessing them both, I'll bet you your gut when it comes to your career is more often accurate than perhaps other business decisions in life, buying a company, selling a home, right? I mean, just recognize, is your gut, is your, is your gut a valuable Jiminy Cricket? Yeah. For some people, it's not. Look at their dating record, right? Look at their bankruptcies. Look at you know their marriages or their jobs. Not everyone's gut is valuable. Your gut really is your conscience, right? And your conscience is based also on a bit your experiences. Do I have a, a set of facts and experiences in which to make a good decision? A long answer. I hope that was helpful. No, it, it definitely was. I think breaking it, like you said, the I've, I've read that book from Susan David, Emotional Agility, probably three years ago. I probably need to revisit it. But her TED Talk is superb. Yeah, yeah. No doubt. Um, but like breaking it, like realizing that, you know, emotions and, and facts are, are different and both can be useful, but Dude, I can't honest, quote a book that you haven't read. You're like the most literate person I know. I cannot quote a book that you haven't read. What a fine one. You're, you're, you're better at re- recalling the, the information from them uh, than I am. But uh, I'm going to quote the Kama Sutra before we're done. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. Relax, people. Oh my lord! Um, all right. Well, I want to get I want to get down to the last couple of questions. I know the second to last one is something that you could probably expand on for hours, but I want to try to get it boil it down to kind of three qu- quicker actionable things. And, it, and it's essentially about around if someone wanted to ask for a raise. And this is pertainable to my life in particular right now because my my brother and my my brother and my six my sister actually just recently. One asked for a raise, one asked for a promotion. They both got it. Um, and I talked to him, I was like, Kelsey, like, write down what you did to, in order to, to get that raise so that one, if anybody else you else ha- asks you to do it, you have some sort of a framework. And when you do it in, in the future, you, you, you can remember that as well. So like, if there are three things that somebody needs to do, almost implying that they're pretty deserving of getting the raise or getting the promotion. If there are three things that they can do before stepping in, before stepping in or while they're with their boss, what do they need? What are three things that they should do to ask for that raise or get that promotion? Sure. I might challenge your premise a little bit because my first answer would be uh, become really self-aware about do you deserve the raise? That's the first. Yeah. Is brutal self-awareness do you deserve this raise from the point of view of your leader? Not your point of view, because you'll make a list a mile long as to why you do, but you might be completely oblivious to the P&L or the profit margins or the cash flow, whatever it is, right? You have no idea what's going outside your circle of concern. 
So become brutally realistic. Second is to have the conversation with your leader that goes like this. I would like to have a conversation with you about what it would take to earn a promotion and earn more money here. Could you share with me what types of behaviors or results and outcomes that you're not seeing in me now that you would need to see from me in the future to earn a raise? And the last is go do it. Well, I think, you know, it's one of those that things. That may not work in every situation. It may not be the way your culture works. But the vast majority of time, if you say to your, because then you've opened up your leader to say, well, while you're asking, there actually are four or five areas in which you're quite frankly underperforming right now. And I really need you to shore these up. Because while you're asking for a raise, she might be thinking, oh my gosh, he's more disconnected than I thought he was. He's asking for a raise. And I'm getting ready to put him on a performance plan. And so that's why I challenge the premise of your question is because I don't know that most people look at their performance through the lens of their leader. They yeah. look at it through the lens of their smaller world. Understandable. Assuming you do deserve the raise, you might treat that question and say, I'd like to have a conversation about with you about what it would take for me to get a raise, a promotion to earn more money. Do you, are you feeling like my performance right now is such that I would deserve that immediately? Or are there some improved results you would need to see out of me in order to earn that? By the way, that is a question, a conversation that every leader would love to have with their employee. Because that shows an amazing amount of maturity and self-awareness. I would like a raise. Do I deserve it? What would I have to do to deserve it? Now you've set the platform for your leader to tell you the truth. Yeah, you, yeah, exactly. I think it all kind of comes home, almost circles together here at the end where you need to know what the definition of success is from your leader that, that you need to work towards. Because, and then, then the other thing is, you know, like the last step is, is go do it. And I think a lot of people probably might be hesitant or procrastinate on potentially asking for a raise that they think they might deserve because they don't know whether they deserve it. And they don't know because they've never asked what would be deserving. So well said. And they're also not aware of what else is going on, right? Perhaps the company missed its second quarter and there's been a freeze on promotions. Perhaps someone came in an hour before you and threatened to quit and they spent all of the money retaining that person. I mean, that's not your problem, but you don't know that. So if you go in, if you go in just thinking about yourself, you're going, to see, you're going to seem self-serving and kind of naive, but it's all in how you ask the question, right? Is, is I would like to know, in your view, is my current performance deserving of a raise? It's been X number of times since I've received one or X number of years or months since I've been eligible for one. And then, and then depending upon what the person says, now you have more data. You have more facts upon which to make a decision. Your decision might be the middle finger. Your decision might be, thank you very much. I'm going to go build my 20-year career timeline. Your decision might be, thank you. So if I do these three things in the next 90 days, that will result in this promotion, this raise. Great. I'll go do those. Or I don't want to do those. I mean, so now you're making your career decisions on facts, not on innuendo and your feelings that you think you just deserve one. 
you think you deserve a raise, the odds are your boss has an opinion on that as well. <laughs> no doubt. Like you just rounded it out. It's all about uh, doing things to make sure that your career is not accidental and, and to make sure it's deliberate. You know, Nick, it's also about, it's about moving outside of your mind. It's not just seeing everything through your own lens and your own paradigm. It's stepping back and saying, so what does my leader really think about me? Can I share a very short story? Yes, please. Countless times, someone has come to my office that does not work for me. They're somewhere else in the company. Countless times. Hey, Scott, I'm thinking about applying for this job in the organization. Do you think I'm qualified? And the first question I ask them is, what does your current boss think of you? How would your current leader judge your performance? Without exception, the person always says, great. I think they would say, I'm crushing it. I'm killing it. And I say, well, and then so I talk with them. And then unbeknownst to them, I call up their leader. And I, and I don't give away ever that that person was in my office looking for a new job. I just find a way to say, hey, can I ask you a question after I've asked this other question? Hey, tell me about Nick Carrier. What's Nick like? And they say, oh my gosh, Nick is a total pain in the ass. He's missed four of his past, past five deadlines. He's always looking for a new job. And their boss has a completely different perspective of their performance with the person said to me, to my face. They're never the same. So my point is, I think one of the biggest skills you can have in your career is move outside your own frame of reference and get into your boss's frame of reference. What does she think about your performance? How would she rate you? And if you don't know, go ask her. Gosh, that's so, so key, like so important. Elementary, but so many people spend their lives kind of guessing and assuming and, and just bouncing around and hoping they get a good review when they're disconnected from reality. And I'll tell you, one of my biggest challenges in life is I may live in the future, but I am a realist and I have a very accurate view of what people think about me. My boss, my publisher, my editor, my readers, podcast host. I mean, I do not live in a fantasy land. Now, it's up to me whether I choose to value their perspective, whether I choose to confront my behavior and change it. But I don't live in la-la land. I know exactly what most people think about me. Mm, that's good. That's good. Well, don't want to take uh, too much more of your time. I appreciate you being so gracious as always. And Uh, no, that's awesome. That's awesome. Well, well, Scott, I just, <laughs> I'll try, I'll try as much as you might deviate me away from it. Um, no, I just, I just want to acknowledge you for having the ability at, at such a young age to realize that that disappointment of being fired from Disney could turn into an appointment if you let it. And you had the ability at a young age to plan out your career, to be super deliberate, to allow serendipity to, to, to come in when, when, when needed, but to stay so focused after having had the beginning in, uh, or the end in mind. And that's something that 
I know not a lot of people have. And through your coaching and through Ignite Your Genius, you're going to allow more and more people to do that and allow people to have deliberate careers that they're they're proud of and and can look back on with a lot of pride. That is my goal now in the next you know final phase of my career. I'm 53. I've got hopefully two decades ahead of me. It is to help people take control of their career. To get very clear, very deliberate. Don't give it up to somebody else. Uh, you mentioned the Ignite Your Genius course. It's actually you know 11 modules online, very affordable. Go to scottjeffreymiller.com. As soon as you register, I actually ship you a printed guidebook. Most courses have you do it virtual. And there's a virtual guidebook that you can use if you want to not have the paper. I think there is some value in being able to write it down and reference it and revisit it as well. You get that dry erase uh, multi-decade career chart as well. And you get um, hours of listening to my lovely voice at obnoxious pace on video mm-hmm. as well. Well, well, yeah, guys, I, c- I could not recommend it enough. And, and you know, I just kind of reiterate all the things that we've said is because I've, I've done it before and I've, I've been around Scott enough to, to know the power of gaining clarity and how much confidence that allows you to have on a daily basis around your decision-making. So you guys go to scottjeffreymiller.com, check that out. You can also follow Scott on Instagram at scottmillerj1 and, and see everything that he posts about his family and his three boys. It's, 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 a, it's a sight to be seen, that's for sure. Uh, well, Scott, last question. It's the same last question that I asked you last time, but I didn't, go, I didn't want to go back and look at your answer, so I'll be interesting to compare the two. Um, I think getting closer to the best version of yourself is a constant journey and a unique journey. I don't think we're ever at that best version of ourself. Um, and I think that the way that we're going to get there is, is very unique to us. I think the way that I'm going to get closer to the best version of myself is going to be a little bit different than the way that you get closer to the best version of yourself. So for you personally, if there are three things that you could currently do or currently work on to get closer to that best version of Scott Miller that you could possibly be, then what are those three things that you could currently do or currently work on? Talk less, listen more. Exponentially raise my daily level of gratitude for what I have and not what I don't have. And to make and keep commitments. Don't over promise and under deliver, but under promise and over deliver. I had no idea what that question was going to be, but that's my answer. That's my answer. (laughs) Love it. I love it. And uh, if your wife had input, she'd maybe say, be a little bit more present. <laughs> or maybe she likes me not being present today. I don't know. Today's yeah. a good day. Marriage is tough, people. And three boys in five years makes it tougher. I tell Nick all along, choose your spouse very carefully because from them will come all of your pain and all of your pleasure. To quote my wife, uh, I married very well. It's debatable how well she did. Thank you, Nick. Scott, it was awesome. I really appreciate it. (laughs) I hope you all enjoyed that massively valuable interview with Scott. Be sure you share this episode with a friend or family member. Be sure to rate it and review it on iTunes or the Apple Podcast app and let me know what your favorite takeaway was from Scott. Remember, if you don't act, prepare to be acted upon. If you don't intentionally take control of your career, then your career will go in directions that you do not want it to. It is paramount in order to have a career that you can look back on and take pride in to set up a career vision and timeline, to identify your professional values, to ask your boss for feedback on on how you're doing. It's also paramount to ask your boss what someone who's in your position needs to do in order to get a raise and or in order to get 
of promotion. It's important to know when to disrupt yourself, to know when it's time to harvest, and so many other amazing lessons that Scott shared with us today. Don't let whether or not you get closer to the best version of yourself up to chance. Don't let whether or not you have a successful career be up to the alignment of the stars. Like, no, like take ownership of it. Be deliberate about it so that you can have the most successful career in your eyes and so that you can get closer and closer to your best you. Thank you.